Philippians chapter number one, Philippians chapter number one, man, what a blessing to get to be in the house of God. I do appreciate your prayers uh, on my behalf. I'm, people ask me, they said, how do you feel, preacher? You feel better? I said, well, in some ways I feel better, in some ways I feel worse. What was up here has moved down into here, amen? And uh, so now it's got to get from here to out there. I mean, not out there, but out there. And uh, I thought to myself, man, what a picture that is, amen? People that have a head knowledge of God, what's got to go from here down to right here, and then from there to out there, amen? And uh, so, yeah, I might just preach on that tonight, amen? All right, Philippians chapter number 1 tonight, Philippians chapter number 1, and I'd like to be in reading at verse number 12. This is one of my favorite passages in the Word of God. Undoubtedly, it is one that you're familiar with. I'd remind you that the book of Philippians is one of the prison epistles that uh, was penned down by the Apostle Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and so he's writing this from a jail cell, one commentator uh, spoke about how touching it must have been every time that he moved his wrist to uh, pin down these words you would have heard or heard the uh, the chains as they clink together. Uh, but yet through the book of Philippians, rather than finding him complaintive, murmuring, discontented, the theme of the book is the joy of the Lord. And so maybe we can learn a little bit from Paul tonight as we go through trials about how to have the joy of the Lord. Philippians chapter 1 Verse number 12, Paul says this, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy, and strife, and some also of goodwill. <clears throat> the one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached? And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. Lord, I pray that you give me not only the strength, but, but the air, the wind to be able to preach tonight. Lord, above all, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take the words of your book and make them living and real and powerful in our hearts and minds, that you would wield your sword of the Spirit, Lord, in our lives, and that, Father, you would do that which would bring you the most glory. Speak to our hearts. Make us more like Christ. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to notice what Paul says in verse number 12. He said, but I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel. You know, when we read this passage, and I feel like very often as we read the word of God, we hold a different standard to the understanding of the word of God than we would to many other things that we would read and, and consume. And, you know, if you're going to understand what Paul's talking about here, then you just need simply to break it down statement by statement and ask rational questions about what Paul's speaking of. For instance, 
When Paul says the things which happened unto me, what exactly is he talking about? When you read this chapter of scripture and really this entire book, you'll find that there are three sources of affliction that loom over Paul in this passage. Three things that had happening or were about to happen to him uh, that are sort of, of flavoring and giving a context to what Paul is dealing with here. I would say, number one, his bonds loom over Paul in this passage. In verse number 12, he talks about his bonds in Christ. Now, as we already said a moment ago, this is a prison epistle. So Paul's writing this in a Roman jail cell. He does not know what the rest of his days hold necessarily. And it seems as though, with the language that Paul uses here, that the prospect of his imminent death is something that is within the scope of his perspective. And so he is bound up. He's unable to go and do the things that he wished that he could. Certainly, I think any of us would consider this to be a severe affliction and trial that Paul's going through. So he speaks about his bonds. And then number two, his betrayal looms large in this. And by that, I mean the betrayal he had suffered at the hands of others. Verse number 16, he describes a group of people who are preaching and their purpose in preaching is not to magnify Christ, but rather to create more, (coughs) excuse me, affliction for him. He says in verse number 15, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Now, don't misunderstand me. There there were people one to Christ outside of the scope of Paul's ministry in the New Testament. But here, Paul is speaking about people that he evidently had some sort of past historical relationship with. They held an animosity towards him. And they were seeking to make his road more difficult. That suggests to me these were probably people that Paul had won to the Lord. People that had been fellow laborers with him. People that he had once uh, labored and served in ministry with. And now they've turned their backs on him. Uh, Probably these are some of those men that he spoke of when he wrote to Timothy and said at my first answer, no man stood with me. They all forsook me. These are people who undoubtedly Paul once counted amongst friends. But now because of his bonds, they have separated themselves from him and are seeking to advance themselves through casting him in a dire light. I would say this, man, he's dealing with this bondage that he's in, but he's also suffering personal, spiritual, emotional hurt because of the betrayal that he's felt. Sometimes the battles that we face are external. They're things that are apparent from anybody's observation. But sometimes the hardest trials we go through is when those that we love the most hurt us the deepest. And Paul is no doubt experiencing this. His bonds... And his betrayal, but then I would say number three is his beheading. Now, uh, history and scripture as well will tell us that Paul did not die during this uh, imprisonment. He actually wound up getting out of prison and going on and ministering uh, for a while. And, and then later on was cast into prison again. And it was on that occasion uh, that he was beheaded by the wicked Roman emperor Nero. But Paul doesn't know this. Uh, Paul is anticipating the prospect of him being beheaded, him being killed, executed at any turn. And, and, and that, that becomes apparent when you read through this passage. I mean, he talks about the fact that to live is Christ, to die is gain. He talks about magnifying Christ, whether his life through his life or whether through his death. In other words, he's coping with his mortality. And he has real severe danger looming over his head at any time. 
<clears throat> I wish I could tell you that I was bulletproof and, and didn't fear death. To be honest, I didn't think that much about it the last two, three days. Amen. But, uh, the reality is the human part of us fears that which we've not experienced. And, uh, you know, I've always, I've always been interested in, in that scene of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I don't want to make deeper statements than I'm credentialed to make, but, you know, he cries out and he says, Lord, you know, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Why did he pray that? I mean, he understood that he was going to the cross of Calvary. He had already set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. Why exactly did he pray that way? Did he anticipate that God would somehow change course? I, I don't know that he did. I think rather, as the Hebrews writer says, though he were a son, yet learned the obedience through the things which he suffered, meaning not that he apprehended knowledge he didn't already have, but rather that he served as a fit example for us in being obedient, even in things that might be distasteful to our own personal desire or our own personal plan. I think he left us an example that as he suffered, we should walk in his steps suffering likewise. And I think he was simply showing us this, that that the flesh of man, not meaning the depravity of man, but meaning the infirmity of man, naturally fears death. And I think that many a saint, no doubt, has been comforted in those moments of anxiety as they're looking at the prospect of dying and knowing that it's a natural thing for us to be nervous about something that we've never passed through before. Certainly, we can be delivered from the bondage that comes from that fear. But I don't know that we ever are necessarily going to long to leap headlong into that experience. And Paul, no doubt... He sounds bold, he sounds brave, and, and I'm not saying that that's put on, but you also can't tell me that simply as a human being, it didn't cause him to be fearful knowing that he could die any day. I mean, he was a Roman citizen, he was due a trial, but let's be honest, this time in human history, and particularly with Nero on the throne, uh, Nero didn't always exactly do things above board. <laughs> he could have called Paul at any moment and set off with his head. So Paul is dealing with these things in his personal life. But then when we think about that in the context of what he says in verse number 12, he says, but I would ye should understand. In other words, Paul says, I'm afraid you're misunderstanding some things as you stand on the sideline and observe the trials that I'm going through. He says, there's a danger that you're going to look at it and think that the devil's won. There's a danger you're going to look at it and think that the Lord is lost. There's a danger you're going to look at it and think that I have somehow fractured in my faith. There's a danger that you're going to look and somehow think that the gospel has failed. And he says, I don't want you to view things through that prism and perspective. He said, I, I would you should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather. In other words, you think this is what they are, but rather they are something else. I wonder how many times what we're going through in life we think is one thing. But if we could look at it through the through the scope of Scripture, we might realize that it's rather something else altogether. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight. Fallen out rather. Paul was fearful that they would misunderstand his trials and would miss what God was doing through them. So he wants to give them a fresh perspective on what he's going through. And I think it'd be good when we're going through hard times to have this perspective as well. Notice that there are sort of three portions to this passage, and they all offer us Paul's perspective on different things that he's experiencing. Notice number one tonight, in verses 12 through 14, we have Paul's perspective on his problems. 
He says this, the things which happened unto me, verse 12, <coughs> have fallen out rather unto what? Unto the furtherance of the gospel. Here's what Paul recognized. He said, you know, here I am shut up in prison. I'm bound, but as he wrote to the church at Corinth, the word of God is not bound. And he recognizes that even in the midst of his trials, and maybe in some ways, in a proprietary sense, because of his trials, the message is still being heard. I wonder how often we go through our trials, we think to ourselves, what opportunities does this afford me to be a witness to someone? People love to talk about bad news. They love to talk about problems. If you're an uninteresting person, just get some problems in your life. People will want to talk to you about them. And how often do we waste that opportunity? Paul says, and you know, he talks about in verse number 13 that the bond, his bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. You know, later on, he would write and he would talk about the church, which is in Caesar's household. Every time that Paul was thrown into jail, they would take and uh, put a quaternion of soldiers, of guards on him. What that would mean is that they would literally chain one to one hand, one to the other, one to one foot, and one to the other. And they would watch him four at a time in shifts. And Paul saw this. He could have sat and griped. He could have had a bad attitude. He could have sulked. He could have cussed him. He could have spit at him. But instead, he witnessed to him. He said, man, this is an opportunity for me to witness people that I would never have a chance to talk to otherwise. You know, it's much your decision and my decision in our trials whether or not we allow it to stymie our witness. Because the Word of God is not bound. Every every situation you're in, one of the things that I, I think I said this on Sunday, one of the things I love about our Track Day Challenge is you can't find a bad person to give a track to. And everything we go through provides us an opportunity to empathize with someone that has been through something similar or to testify to somebody who can't imagine going through what we're going through. It always gives us opportunities to be a witness for Christ. So his first perspective is, listen, the message, don't despair for me. The message is being heard. But then look at verse 13. He says, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. In that interesting language, my bonds in Christ. Now, there's a couple statements we could make about this. Probably most explicitly when Paul uses that terminology, he's saying that he's in prison for the testimony of Jesus Christ. But I would also say this, that that being the case, it suggests to us, and this is a beautiful truth, Paul never viewed himself as being a prisoner of Rome. Why? Because he wasn't a, he may have had Roman citizenship, but his citizenship was in heaven. Hey, that, that Roman emperor may have thought he was God on earth, but he wasn't. And, and our God is God in heaven. And it may have been Roman chains around him. And it may have been Roman bars on the window. And it may have been Roman guards at either side of him. But he never called himself a prisoner of Rome. He always and ever called himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He recognized who had the ultimate jurisdiction over his life. And so he's saying this, I'm here for the testimony of Jesus Christ. The entire existence that I know right now is wrapped up in this one singular truth. When men talk to me, they'll ask me, why are you here? What have you done? What is the reason for your imprisonment? And I always and ever can have this answer to give them. I'm here because of what Christ did in my life. And I'm here because he's my savior. He's my Lord. 
and my life is all about him. In that, and in them witnessing his devotion to Jesus Christ, his willingness to with joy endure the afflictions that he was experiencing, literally evidence to a broken, lost, and blind world in a unique way that nothing else could, the power of Christ in his life. Had Christ not been who he was, and had he not done what he did in Paul's life, then undoubtedly Paul would have recanted, would have slandered him, would have blasphemed him, would have uh, turned his back on him so that he could secure freedom. And the very thing that kept Paul in that prison was not all of Rome or its authority or its power. For had he been willing to recant Christ, they would have let him go. But it was the power of Christ in his life that kept him bound there. Let's say it this way. Paul says, listen, the message is being heard. But number two, the master is being seen. He's saying this, people are seeing Christ in my life that would have never seen my life in the first place. And people are seeing Christ in my life in a way that cannot be argued against. It cannot be debated. It cannot be disputed. They may call me a madman, but they can't claim that I don't believe what I'm telling them is true. He said, you know, they're seeing Christ evidenced in my life in the way that he sustains me and in the way that he protects me and in the way that he strengthens and gives me joy in a way that they never otherwise could see. We don't like this. I don't like it. You don't like it. So I guess we'll all just have to get together and by grace lump it. But the truth of the matter is it is often the most difficult things that we face in life that bring God the most glory. Paul himself, in praying for God to remove a thorn in his flesh, could have been a physical malady. We assume that, but we really don't know. But he said that after praying and asking God three times to take it from him, and God saying no every time, that whenever God said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee, Paul said this, I will therefore glory in mine infirmity, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The thing that he was begging God to take away most was the thing that God was getting the most glory out of his life through. And Paul learned to look at his problems, be it that malady or be it this imprisonment, and say, you know, in this God's doing things that he could do no other way. So we would say this, the message is being heard, the master is being seen. But look at verse 14. He says this, And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Brother Paul, everything's fell apart for you, man. You're laid up in prison there. You're not able to get out and preach the gospel. The gospel's not going out. Paul say, oh yes, the message is being heard. Here you are locked away in prison. What are people going to think of Jesus when they see that his servant is locked in prison? Don't despair for me. The master's being seen. And they'd say, what about the churches, Paul? What about these churches you've planted? They're going to see you going through this. And they're going to lose heart. And Paul would say, on the contrary, here's what I've seen. I've seen that those that know and love the Lord, they're waxing confident by my bonds. They're not giving out and they're not giving up. They're digging in. And they're saying, if Paul can do it, then we can do it as well. We could say it this way. The ministry is being grown. It's being developed. Christians are being emboldened. And, you know, you never know. I won't belabor this point, but you never know who's watching what you're going through sitting there thinking to themselves, if they can do it, then by God's grace and strength, I can do it as well. I'm always, when I think about the power of our testimony on other believers, reminded of the children of Israel in the Old Testament whenever uh, the uh, Philistines were encamped down in the valley and 
uh, King Saul, who should should have been leading them, but was instead laid up under a pomegranate tree. And it tells you it ain't got no good taste. There had to be a better tasting fruit to lay around up underneath than a pomegranate tree. And uh, with his army refusing to go forth to fight, Jonathan looks over at his armor bearer and says, man, this is a joke. The, the, the army, the opposing forces down there in the valley, while we laid up here in the shade under this tree, this is an embarrassment. We're the army of the Lord. He looks at his armor bearer and says, let's just go down there and see if we can whoop a few. And his armor bearer says, well, I'm with you, whatever you want to do. And they go down and, and they plunge themselves into the heart of the battle and they start to lay them low by the acre. And they look down into the valley and those that were in the camp, they hear the tumult and they look down in the valley and they say, who is that down there tearing into them like a hurricane? They take inventory and they find out that only Jonathan and the armor bearer are missing. And they say, well, we ain't going to let them have all the fun. And they run down and charge into the battle. And the Bible says there were even some Hebrews that had hid themselves in caves from the battle. And when they saw what was going on, they left the caves and joined the battle. And then there were some that had switched sides and had been fighting with the Philistines, some defectors. And, and they said, well, well, why are we on this side? That's our people. We ought to be on that side. And they changed side. Man, no telling what can happen if somebody says, I'm not going to let this stop me from serving the Lord. We see the ministry is being grown. So we see his perspective on his problems. But then notice number two, he, he gives us his perspective on his persecution. He says in verse number 15, some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. Funny thing about preaching, uh, it takes a certain amount of meanness to be a preacher. There's just a hair's breadth of difference between preaching and arguing. And sometimes, if we're just being honest, uh, this thing of preaching draws some pretty rotten personalities. And what Paul's saying here is there's people out there, and here's what I suspect, although we're going to have to use a little bit of sanctified imagination, because there's some of this that the Holy Spirit is just silent on. doesn't exactly tell us everything that's going on. But it appears to be that there were some of these brethren that grew jealous of Paul. That's what it says, preach Christ even of envy. And so they sought to find some way to discredit him and to disturb and destroy him. And strife is what it says. Now, how would they do this? Well, in verse 16, he says, the one preach Christ of contention, to contend with someone, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Here's what it sounds like to me. It sounds like there were some brethren due to personal jealousy towards Paul that began to seek to advance their own ministry by casting a stark difference between Paul and labeling him as a fanatic. In other words, that sought to say, don't associate us with that brother Paul. That guy's a loon, man. He, he's a kook. I mean, he's he's fringe. Don't you associate us with him. We're the ones that are really following Christ. That guy, I mean, he's just some nut out there. And this seems to be what Paul is dealing with. But notice how he says this. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife. Some also of goodwill. <laughs> In other words, Paul says, not everybody that hates me hates Jesus. I'm just going to let that marinate for a second. Not everybody that hates me hates Jesus. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's all of us have enough touch of obnoxious that there's plenty of reasons for people to dislike us on our own merit. He says some of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing 
that I am set for the defense of the gospel. Notice, number one, his realism towards their motives. He recognizes that uh, not everybody that's against him is against God. But he also recognizes that there are some, no doubt, out there that are not his fans because they don't like the stand that he's taking for Jesus Christ. And they don't want to face that same uh, affliction and that same scrutiny. But notice that he does not name names. I want to be very careful with what I'm about to say here. There's a couple qualifying statements I want to make. One, when it was appropriate, Paul named names. <coughs> the Bible says them that sin rebuke openly before all that others may fear. It's biblical to name names. It makes me nervous when people don't want to name names of people that are open heretics and reprobates. And it does not necessarily mean that our ministry needs to become preoccupied with that endeavor above Christ. But if you read your Bible, you'll find that part of the role and responsibility of a preacher of the word of God is not just to stand for truth, but also to call out error and warn the people of God against it. There are times he, he talked about Alexander the coppersmith. He talked about Demas. And by the way, this wasn't some TV preacher. These these was people that folks knew. I mean, these were people that folks had gone to church with. And he called them out and called them by name. But Paul doesn't do that here. What does that suggest to us? Well, it suggests this. At a distance, Paul doesn't feel qualified to parse through these things. In other words, he recognizes there's probably some out there that hate him and are wrong for hating him. There's probably some out there that dislike him and maybe are justified in doing it. And there's probably some out there that in serving the Lord, they could be easily misconstrued as being on the opposite side of this issue from him. Paul does not have rose-colored glasses about this. He's realistic about it. And here's the truth of the matter. There are going to be some people, if you take a stand for Christ, that are not going to like that. But if you make yourself the center of the universe, if you yield to the narcissism of the flesh and you become a, a sort of a, you know, a diva of Christianity and make it as though everybody that says anything against you, it's because they hate God. All you're doing is developing a blind spot for yourself. There's a lot of ministries around. If you criticize anything about them, you must be jealous. Let me tell you something. Not everything's about mean eyed, green eyed jealousy. I read a preacher make this statement, and I thought it was good. He said, jealousy makes no sense in the context of of uh, ministry amongst preachers. He said, if a man's a compromiser, I don't want anything he's got. And if a man's not a compromiser, then we're on the same side. If he's winning, we're winning. And I would say it's certainly true. I see his realism towards their motives, but then I see his rejoicing at their ministry. Notice verse 18. And I'm going to make a second qualifying statement here. He says, what then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense, meaning not in sincerity, <coughs> or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice. Now, there's something you need to underscore if you're going to rightly divide the word of truth here. And that's that phrase, underscored in your mind, in your heart, Christ is preached. Paul is not papering over heresy here. Paul never rejoiced in error being preached. He never rejoiced in heresy being promulgated. He's not saying, well, you know, they claim they know Jesus, so that's enough, and it doesn't matter what other poison and bile that they spew. He's talking about people that are legitimately preaching the truth of the word of God, but may have some personal issue with him. 
I would say this, we shouldn't rejoice in error. We shouldn't rejoice when things that are wrong, erroneous, unscriptural, untrue are promulgated. It doesn't matter if a man labels himself a Christian. If he doesn't walk in the truth, he's none of Christ. He's talking about people that know Christ. He's talking about people that probably have some personal animus against him, maybe justified, maybe not. But he says this, if they're preaching Christ, meaning in truth and in in sincerity, if they're telling the truth about who Christ is and preaching the gospel and standing on the truth of the word of God, he says, I therein do rejoice. Here's what he learned. Here's what you're going to have to learn if you're going to weather your problems and give glory to God through it. It ain't about you and me. It's not. It's not about our reputation. It's not about our advancement. It's not about our aggrandizement. I'm just going to tell you something. You can believe the world revolves around you, uh, but you're going to be knocked for a loop as you navigate through life and learn that that's not the case. Truth of the matter is, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ. And you say, preacher, my plans are all falling apart. Well, how are his plans doing? Preacher, my ambitions aren't being realized. Well, how are his ambitions? Preacher, nobody's giving me praise. Are they praising him? Paul could be satisfied in a prison cell because he understood it wasn't about him in the first place. So he rejoiced at their ministry. And then notice the end of verse 18. He says, yea, and will rejoice. Sometimes (coughs) preachers preach at themselves. I think Paul's preaching at himself. It's a redundant statement. But, of course, nothing in the Word of God is redundant. And when we look at it, at first blush, we think, well, there's no reason for Paul to have to say this. He already said, I therein do rejoice. Why does he say, yea, and will rejoice? He's reaffirming his commitment to this. Let's say it this way. We see his resolve in his mandate. God has commanded him to rejoice, and he's going to rejoice. He's recognized this. That when we are worked up into a fervor of spiritual devotion, it's easy to make these statements. But in the quietness of our own heart, when our burdens weigh heavy, it will not be as easy to rejoice in these things. And it's going to take some discipline and some determination when things get difficult to say, you know, I'd made my mind up that God was working in this. Now, I, boy, it's the load's getting heavy. Paul says, just go ahead and double down and rejoice in him again. Just go ahead and rejoice in him again. When he talks about rejoice, he's talking about having joy, but not only having joy, but expressing that joy. That's why you're rejoicing. You're rejoying. The joy is on the inside. Now you're going to joy on the outside. Now he's going to re-rejoice, like the re-reward in the Old Testament. I'm going to re-rejoice. And if I I ain't enough, I'll re-re-re-re-re-rejoice. But he says, I'm not going to quit praising God for what he's doing. I see his perspective on his problems and his perspective on his persecution. But finally, look at verse 19. I see his perspective on his prospects. What does this all mean for him? What is a man like Paul, what is his future worth? Well, he thinks it's worth a lot. He says in verse 19, for I know that this shall turn. Now, that's future tense. It shall. It's going to shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, 
whether it be by life or by death. Brother Paul, how do you feel about it all? What do you think the days hold for you? Notice he talked about, number one, the prize that awaited him. He says in verse 19, I know that this shall turn to my salvation. What does he mean by that? Does he mean hopefully this will work his way to heaven? Well, if he did, he's going to have to explain something to the Paul that wrote the book of Ephesians and the Paul that wrote the book of Galatians and the Paul that wrote the book of First and Second Corinthians and the Paul that wrote the book of Colossians. Uh, no, Paul, he's not saying it's going to work towards me being saved. Uh, even later on in this very uh, book, he would talk about in chapter number three being found, not having mine own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of God, righteousness of Christ which is of God by faith. He's not talking about working his way to heaven, but he is talking about working on what's going to be there when he gets there. If we talk about salvation in a meta sense, in a broad scope, as being the the wholeness of God's saving work in our life, then it's more than just that our past is forgiven, we're pardoned, and promised a seat in heaven. I'm glad he didn't just save me from hell, he saved me to himself. Part of that process is as I become consecrated to Christ, it's not me working my salvation in, but it is my salvation working out in my life. Paul's saying these things that I'm going through, he's saying I'm trusting that God's going to use this to grow me, to develop me, and that he's going to reward me through these things. Through your prayer, he says, because you're praying for me, and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. What a precious title that is for the Holy Ghost, because he is indeed the Spirit of Christ. Paul's saying the same Spirit that enabled and empowered our Lord and Savior to face his afflictions and give glory to the Father is the same spirit that I'm supplied with. And inasmuch as I let that spirit evidence his His will and, and, the, and the power of God in my life, I trust that these things are not going to break me, but rather they're going to bless me. He says these things, they're not going to turn to my destruction. They're going to turn to my salvation. They're not going to contribute to me being laid low. They're going to contribute to me being grown into the image of Christ more and more. He talks about the prize that awaited. And then verse 20, he expands on this. And he talks about the preservation he anticipated. He says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. Now, why would he be ashamed? Well, if he turned on Christ, cursed his name, if he quit living for the Lord, if he gave up serving God. But he says, I'm not expecting that to happen. But rather that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. <coughs> Say, Brother Paul, things look pretty bleak. How much longer do you think you can hold on? Paul says, I ain't worried about holding on. He's holding on to me. I ain't planning on giving up. Paul says, I plan on keeping trust in him. I plan not listen. I'm not, I don't plan on breaking. I, I plan on being bold. And he anticipated that by the strength and help of God, rather than his witness being diminished, that Christ would be magnified through him. Sometimes an added burden in our afflictions is the fear that somehow we'll falter. 
I don't know. I don't know if I can hold up. Well, if you're trying to hold up, then you probably won't. But if you'll cast yourself on the rock of Christ and trust in him completely and say, now, Lord, I'm not pretending to be able to handle this. I'm admitting freely I can't. But if you'll guide me day by day, I'll be obedient to you. If you'll hold my hand, Lord, I'll keep walking with you. And through that, God will be glorified and Christ would be magnified. See the prize that awaited and the preservation he anticipated. But notice finally in verse 21, we see the purpose he accepted. Now, the end of verse 20, he says, So now also shall Christ be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. In verse 21, he says this, For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. There's not many of us, I don't think, me certainly, I would not feel bold enough to say what Paul said here. But I don't know that Paul is necessarily communicating a, a fact about his about his state. But rather, I think he's communicating something about his purpose. I'd say it this way, we see the purpose that he accepted. If I'm to live, it is only and singularly for this purpose. It's for Christ. Paul recognized that the only way there'd be no reason to go on is if he quit serving Christ. <clears throat> Undoubtedly, every so often, some emissary of Rome would come in and say, Paul, if you'll just curse him, we'll let you go and live. Paul, if you'll just turn your back on him, you can go and you can live the rest of your days. If, if, you'll, just, if you'll just sell him out, Paul, then we'll let you get on with your life. And Paul says, what life? If I did that, it wouldn't be life anymore. To live is Christ. I have no other reason to live. If I turned my back on him, then I wouldn't have anything to live for. But he says, as long as I live, I should see it as my purpose to let Christ be magnified in me. One of these days, I'm going to die. Paul knows that. One day he did, but he said, until that day comes, I'm going to make sure that every day of my life is not about Paul, but instead it's about Christ. How could a man with chains on his wrists write a little letter dripping with the joy of the Lord? Well, here's how. Because he didn't want them to misunderstand what God was doing through his trials. He had a biblical perspective through him. And so through that perspective, God was able to get glory out of his life. And he was strengthened by it. wonder if our perspective's right about what we're going through. If it's not, I'm glad we can get our eyes on Jesus and get our perspective right. Let's bow together tonight. This musician comes to play. Karen's going to come play for us. The altar is open. I want to invite you to come and to meet the Lord in the altar if he's spoken to your heart about anything. We did a lot of preaching tonight. There's a lot of things God might have spoken to you about. I'll not try to touch on the right one by going through a list. I'll just trust that you are mature enough in the Lord that if God dealt with you, you don't need any prodding or begging. You'll just meet him in this altar. Lord, bless this invitation. In Christ's name.